0: Welcome to episode 43 of Terminator 101, the James Cameron Terminator podcast. In this episode, you are gonna be treated to an exclusive one-on-one with Ian Nathan, the former editor and executive editor of Empire Magazine, the world's number one movie magazine, as well as the author of several incredible making of books, including Terminator Vault, Alien Vault, Tim Burton, the iconic filmmaker and his work, as well as the upcoming Stephen King at the movies. This was an incredible, incredible one-on-one that I was very fortunate to have the opportunity to do with Ian, and I'm so excited for you guys to hear the vast amount of material that him and I covered. So don't go anywhere. After this sponsor, we're coming back, and it's time for some one-on-one with Ian Nathan. Now before we go any further, I just really quickly want to shout out my Patreon members over at patreon.com slash t101podcast. Lucas Grudzian, Engelbert Sebastian, Ruben Dobson, Danny Pirate, Ami Prasad, T-Bob Art, Marie Spurlick, Oliver Mercer, and Michael Wellen. Thank you. For your patronage to Terminator 101, it means the world to me. I do not take it for granted, and you're all awesome, so thank you. Now, if you guys want to join that exclusive list, get extra content, benefits, early episodes, head over to patreon.com slash t101podcast. All righty, guys. We are... Back on Terminator One Hundred and One, and this is a very, very cool episode because uh, on the other end of the line is Ian Nathan, who, um, among many other credits, and we're going to touch on all of his uh, particular points in his career that he's willing to talk about because I think it's, uh, I think it's a pretty awesome career uh, so far. But uh, he is a author. Uh, he used to, as far as I know, it's the keyword used to used to work for Empire Magazine. Um, which is uh, you know one of the premier movie magazines out there that you can find. Uh, and they are very uh, dedicated when it comes to James Cameron. So that's a big uh, reason why I love the magazine. Um, but he is also the author of the incredible book, Terminator Vault. And uh, I reached out to him and I was like, would you like to come on the podcast? Because I love that book. It is such a great uh, read. And it's so valuable to Terminator fans. And uh, did you want to come on and talk? And we scheduled it, and here he is. So without further ado, Ian. Hi, how are you? <laughs> good. Thank you so much. How are you doing today?
1: You're very good. Very good, sitting here at my desk. You know, This is the end of play in, in London, but uh, very exciting. It's great to, to revisit Terminator as well, because it's been a while since I wrote the book. So this is a bit of a memory lane for me as well
0: awesome awesome when did that book come out wasn't that in 2011
1: it was yeah so i was writing it um sort of 2010 in pretty much right way through that year um so you're talking about nine years ago now um and you know when he first pitched to me the idea of doing this podcast i was terrified i was thinking oh my god do i remember any of it you know is it all still in my head are you going to test me on the micro detail of the terminator (laughs) but But I started going back through the book just to try and sort of, you know, uh, stir the memory cells a bit, and I've forgotten what a what a great book it is. I'm not trying to blow my own trumpet really, just in terms of the story I got to tell, and the kind of detail I got to go into. It really kind of brought it all back straight away, and and how much I love those two films, the, the Cameron ones, you know, how glorious they are.
0: Yeah, no, that's something that I love about that book that it is uh, sort of like this podcast solely dedicated to. The Cameron films, there is a little bit towards the end where you talk about uh three, four, and uh well, five hadn't come out at that point. So, um, but you do touch yeah. on the other films. So uh before we get to Terminator Vaults, uh for anybody listening, even myself included, because I know your credits and everything, but I'm not very familiar with how you got into doing what you do for a living. So <laughs> Um, if you can just kind of walk us through, sort of a, as quick of a summation as you'd like, how you got to okay. where you are
1: today? Um, okay. Yeah, the part history of me. Um, treat this as a montage. Um, I grew up uh, like any kid, obsessed with the movies, uh, Bond films, Harry Ray Harryhausen movies. Uh, Spielberg came into my life and pretty much changed it. Um, you know, I, I have such a clear memory of seeing Star Wars. At the age of seven in the cinema this sort of seat tipped up so i could see over the tall man's head in front i have a very clear memory of my mum going to see alien and i wasn't allowed to because i was too young and i was really angry about it you know why could she go and see a sci-fi film not really understanding you know at the age i was quite what it entailed um, but you know it started to feed in you know i didn't realize i was a movie obsessive but clearly i was of course when you go to school you know your, your kind of careers teacher never says oh, you can become a film writer, you can become a film critic, you know, that was never on the agenda. And I kind of went away to university and was studying a science degree. And there was kind of various paths put in front of me that was, sounded bleak and boring, you know, involving sort of tech and, and all that side of it. But I was very good at writing and writing essays. And they suggested I get into scientific publishing as a possibility for my career. And one of the um, the suggestions from from the university was go and work for the student newspaper, get some experience just in being part of publishing. And the day I I went along to join, I was walking on the corridor, I remember it so clearly, uh, a door slammed ahead of me and this kind of strange looking chap, very angry, just sort of stormed past me, sort of brushing my arm. I thought, what was that all about? I kind of went into the student newspaper office and said, hi. I introduced myself and said, is there anything I can do to help? Can I get involved? And then editor said, well, the the entertainment editor is just stormed out in a fit of peak. Is there any chance you could fill in for the next couple of weeks? Well, I stayed on that student newspaper for two years, you know, you know, basically I became the entertainment editor. I got to cover all the films and I realized this is what I wanted to do and be, you know, I realized this job existed, That this possibility existed. Um, fast forward uh, a few years of me scrabbling around, getting my freelance career going, getting into newspapers and magazines. I get a job on Empire as a lowly staff writer. Um, best day of my life in many ways. Uh, you know, it was just fantastic. It was the early 90s. It was a brilliant time to be involved in movie magazines. You know, and I would then worked my way up through the magazine very quickly. There were various staff changes I won't bore you with. Um, and by the age of 26, I was the editor. Um, terrified, excited, um, just in the midst of it. And, you know, the brilliance of Empire was while we got to travel out to movie sets and meet movie stars and torch directors and do all the magic stuff, uh, the heartbeat of of Empire was that it it was a magazine about movie going. It wasn't like Premiere, who kind of lived in Hollywood and you kind of expected those journalists to go to cocktail parties with movie stars. We just went to multiplexes and when we understood our readers were like us, and we were like them. And it was like a shared language. We were all in it together. And I think that's why Empire was so brilliant. And that created in me the idea of who I wrote for and how I wrote, that it was this kind of conversation with like-minded people, people like you who just want to talk about the movies. And, you know, I always felt that, you know, what Empire was was the kind of the friend who would always listen to you when all your other friends get bored of you going on about movies you were the one who you were happy to talk to the minutest detail. Um, I spent 20 years on staff of Empire. I still write for Empire. I'm still a contributing editor. Um, I wrote a book called Alien Vault uh, while I was still on the staff. It was very successful. Uh, it was a great joy to write because I'm a huge fan of the, the Alien franchise, especially the first two. Um, and then they came back and said, do you want to write Terminator Vault in the same way? And I said, of course, I love those movies, you know. But we kind of told, as you were saying, when we pitched the book together, we said, right, we can't be about the whole franchise. It really has to be about those first two films, you know, because The Alien Vault was really just about the Ridley Scott movie. And this was going to be about the two Cameron films. And then that's how we took it to James Cameron. Um, There was a lot of negotiation, as you'd expect. Uh, And he agreed to be involved, which was just incredible. So I got two hours with James Cameron. Um, which was daunting and exciting. Uh, but he was brilliant because he just told stories. You know, he did exactly what you wanted him to do. He remembered and he was human and funny. And, yeah, it was just a wonderful experience. And since the two Vault books, I've gone on to write books about Tim Burton. Uh, I've written a very long book about Peter Jackson and the making of the Lord of the Rings films because I covered them. Spent a lot of time in New Zealand with him. Became great friends with him um i'm currently uh writing a book about ridley scott a biography of ridley scott so i'm deep into that world um i've got a book coming out in september on all the adaptations of stephen king um last summer i spent the whole summer watching every single one which is not something i recommend to anyone (laughs) you know you go insane but it's been a great journey and a fascinating thing to write about um and what I say, as you said, I, I've just been the luckiest man in the in the world. I've worked very hard. I've been through many stressful times along the way, but I can't help but look back and go, "I'm one lucky guy."
0: Whew. Man, yeah. Just just listening to that summation, I can definitely tell you that. Uh, and, and and it's always easy to look back in hindsight, but um, yeah, it's it's just so so incredible, and it's something that you know, if if I could even you know get. To some of those points in my career, as someone who enjoys movies as much as you, then I would be as, as happy sounding as you are right now because uh, they're just incredible. So the thing that I wanted to touch on uh, yeah. of your early days was, did you always want to or did you have any kind of inkling that you wanted to be a film critic? Did you want to uh, review films or did you just want to talk about films, not so much critically?
1: um it it kind of came first by default more than anything um once i realized you know you could do this thing you could literally be a film journalist and that was with the student newspaper the first gig you kind of get is as a reviewer um you know that was my job more or less on the you know the 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 student newspaper so i'd go along to these kind of early screenings held at the local cinema and in cardiff is where i went to university you're on a watch hunt for the Red October or the accused That's how long ago it was, you know. And I thought this is just fantastic. And I very much got into the idea of how good a writer was I or was I not, and how capable was I at doing that. So I began to read a lot of kind of the big critics and try and immerse myself into that world. I think once I started to do that, I started to realise it wasn't just about writing reviews at all. You could do interviews you could do features you could write much more expansively about film and film history and that kind of starts to build up in my mind and then once I was a like a film journalist and once I was on empire you know film reviewing was probably only a quarter of what I did you know suddenly you were commissioned to write features and you were out in the field on movie sets and you would it's a different job in a way once you're doing that it's much more about you know, your eyes and accumulating detail and trying to tell the story in your head of what you're experiencing. Um, One of the great joys of doing what I've done in life is trying to translate the thrill of being on movie sets and meeting movie directors into words on the page, you know, and and sort of, and not being a pushover either, you know, and and sort of testing, you know, whoever I'm talking to and testing this world amongst, you know, I've seen an awful lot of terrible films along the way, you know, that needed, you know, sizing up. Um, But you wanted to get over that passion. And, you know, I'm still to this day uh, endlessly fascinated by the words I put down on the page, what I'm like as a writer, how good I am, you know, how I can be fresh and original. Uh, You know, it's always interesting going back and reading yourself from like a decade ago and thinking, actually, I was all right. You know, it was pretty good. You know, you forget things um but that's kind of the heart of it as well you know it's not just i love movies i love writing about movies
0: exactly yeah that's the thing that um because when i when i first started you know really wanting to kind of put my voice out there talking about films it was sort of i think how you said it's sort of like that's the default that i think you feel you have to go to you you have to kind of to to feel validated you have to critically review a film and, and give your opinion on that film. And that's great. And there's definitely a, a time and a, and a place for that stuff, but it's when you can kind of go beyond that and, 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 and really just express your love for film. And, and and that's so cool to hear that it was really because of Empire. And, um, when you got involved with Empire, how old was that magazine? Was it still in its infancy or,
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, Empire began in 1989. I joined it in 94, so five years in. Um, Uh So still relatively young. Uh, Empire was kind of born um, in a company that sort of, I don't even know a magazine called Q about music. Um, And basically Q was kind of born of the the birth of uh, CDs, and the idea that you could collect music on CDs. And Empire was born as a sister magazine to Q at the birth of the Multiplex. Yeah, you there's know, suddenly there's this chance, you could go to the local cinema and there'd be six or seven different choices. You could, you know, have that one night. When I grew up, you know, your local local cinema had a maximum of two films playing, you know, uh, so suddenly there was this whole new world of engaging with with films and Empire sort of represented that. But my, one of my great sort of mentor figures was my first publisher at Empire. He used to sort of say very wise things you know he said it was our job on empire to get people into the cinema not to get them out of it so you always erred on the side of positive sometimes we got in trouble sometimes we overpraise things but yeah that's fine as well because people love to argue with you um, you know it, it was always about sharing something it was always about as I said his argument there was about film going you know don't be pretentious don't be la de about you know where you are be slightly in awe of what you're doing um, it was about humour as well. It was about a sort of shared dialogue that we could talk about films in certain ways. And we borrowed a lot of jokes from Variety Speak. You know, dream of Variety back in the day. You just have this extraordinary sort of language to it. And we kind of borrowed a lot from that. Um, one phrase my publisher gave me was, Empire was Hollywood in English. So he would take a slightly ironic, droll tone, you know, what's it all about then, all these films, all these blockbusters? But as you say, at the heart of it and the most vital part of it was we loved films. And, you know, I remember years later from joining the day we were going to go and see Casino Royale, you know, the new Bond film. And one of the art guys, a young guy called John, uh, the screening was like seven o'clock that evening. He had his bag on his shoulder and his coat on at four in the afternoon. You know, he was so excited, you know. and he couldn't sit down. So we just sent him off to join the queue. But I don't think there was a queue. But he just said, go and stand outside the cinema. We'll join you. You know, he and that was kind of exactly how he should have been. We were kind of like that too. To this day, you know, the big, big sort of screenings, the Star Wars is and you know, the, the Avengers films, you'll see the Empire journalists are in the front of the queue of the press screening, because that's who they are.
0: Wow so what is like your fondest memory of of empire and your uh, entire run working for that magazine <laughs> like, what's the one that stands out to you the most of like your proudest moment your the one that you can look back on that you know way down the road and be like yeah that was like kind of my that was my lasting legacy with empire do you have um, one or, or is that I, too I hard have, of a question
1: it's a very hard question i have many um i have uh, a moment where I went into, uh, we used to have an Empire Awards, um, and we were filming a, an exception speech by Spielberg, who I'd never met. And uh, he was at the, the scoring of Phantom Menace at the time. So he was at Abbey Road with Lucas. And we kind of got there to record this film. And they said, Look, they're, they're going to be two hours, they're deep into the recording. And we kind of went, Fine, this is Spielberg, you know, this is, we, we'll just wait until he turns up. Literally two minutes later, Spielberg and George Lucas walk through the door. And I have the the instinct to be the first one on my feet. And he goes, Hi, I'm Steven Spielberg. And I went, Hi, I know. (laughs) You know, there's one thing I know. (laughs) And he laughed. You know, he probably gets that a lot. Um, You know, uh, in terms of, um, you know, experiences, you know, I I spent two incredible uh, weeks on the set of Lord of the Rings with Peter Jackson and these wonderful New Zealand people who were so, you know, it was so kind of opening, open and welcoming. Yeah. There's a tendency, you may have experienced some of this, but with with Hollywood and with, you know, you know, movie sets in LA and and America, they tend to be slightly more security conscious, slightly more paranoid, but it wasn't like that at all in in Wellington. You know, it was just come and see this, come and see this joint. Yeah. And and, we got to know each other so well he kept inviting me back Jackson you know that was just fantastic you know I went on three different Bond sets uh, got to know Pierce Brosnan they may not be the best Bond films but they were wonderful experiences you know uh, I just uh, it, it sounds kind of um, when you start to sort of account it all and, and sort of tot it all up it's just ridiculous you know you can't compute it all you know the people you've met Jack Lemon, Walter Mattow um Charlton Heston, uh, Tom Cruise, Will Smith, you know, Tom Hanks. He just goes on. Um, As I said, I'm so lucky to have have been through that, you know. And at the same time, I've got to express my own opinion. Uh, Every day on Empire was different. You know, what a sort of thrilling way it was to kind of earn a living because we'd come in and we'd spend like two hours in the morning arguing about Harrison Ford. You know, this wasn't work. This was just kind of guys having fun or girls as well. You know, it was just ridiculous in some ways. You know, as as I sort of said to you, there was lots of pressure. There was lots of kind of, you know, getting the magazine to bed, making sure it's sold and marketing meetings and advertising meetings and all those kind of things came with that, you know. Uh, But it was just fabulous.
0: Yeah, I uh, I man, I can only hope that I can reach that because that is – just like the best of both worlds, you, you get to argue with your buddies about, you know, whatever you are talking about that particular day. But at the same time, that's your, that's your career and, yeah. and you're, you're making impacts with uh, audiences around the world because, I mean, Empire is, as far as I know, right? It's a, it's a global magazine.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're, we're based in London um, and that was always part of the sensibility of the magazine but it's sold literally yeah, all around the world, you know, and there've been sort of various versions in Australia and, and uh, Russia. We had a Turkish version at one point, I don't think it's, it exists anymore, uh, an Italian versions. So we've had sort of various different sort of incarnations, but the heart, the, the kind of beating heart of it, the kind of the skynet of it was always the London office.
0: Yeah. Ah. Oh. and, and, and uh, just to kind of, um... Uh, ca- uh, capsulate the Empire portion of this, how come like, was it your decision to, uh, to leave because you felt like you had done everything that you wanted to do or like why, why is Empire sort of now in your past?
1: <laughs> um, a little bit a lot of different things um, you know, 20 odd years is a long time both uh, long time to be doing the same kind of thing and a long time from the company's point of view to have someone doing the same kind of thing. I understood that. Um, I kind of, you know, there were various political things as well internally. There were sort of changes of regime above me, um, which were difficult. Um, not to go into too much detail, but they were a, a factor as well. Um, a new generation of journalism and, um, you know, styles of journalism was coming in. You know, podcasts that we're doing now. Um, the whole digital world was arriving. You know, and I was, a, you know, died in the wall print man. Um, and in some senses, you know, I understood what, you know what digital was trying to do, but I wasn't completely on its wavelength. And then there was just, um, you know, I'd written two books while I was there. And that was incredibly hard work. While he had a full time job, I had uh, a couple of other books offers, and I thought you know, here is another phase, you know, so I negotiated an exit that was good for both of me and Empire. Um, you know, I, as I say, I still still work for Empire very happily. I'm still um, very proud of the magazine and to try and help as much as I can. Um, still very close to a lot of the people there. Um, you know, there's no way I could have written my Peter Jackson book or the Stephen King book I've just done or a book on Tim Burton and Cohen Brothers I wrote while I was still there. You know, you have to make a decision. Um, being an author and writing books is very time consuming, you know. So, you know, it was a it was a kind of an evolution that needed to happen. Um, those things are never easy. You know, it's difficult to let go of. That's always true. Um, but I think it was the right decision.
0: Wow. So did, so they bring you back for like um... Uh, like guest appearances, I
1: guess you could say. Yeah, something like that. The old timer comes back. Um, certain gigs that they, they think I'm still good for. You know, I, I interviewed um, Danny Boyle, who, who I know quite well from over the years. Uh, I did him for the film yesterday. I haven't seen it yet. So I had a couple of hours of him sort of back in January. Then in April, um, I went out to see Peter Jackson again because obviously we know each other well and they sort of said do do you you want to go out and see peter again and you know and it's sometimes just kind of easy you know they had to send someone new who hadn't been interviewed him before he would have have done it but you know it's much easier to send me and he can relax and you know you just get better access that way sometimes that's kind of how it works Um, and also i you know I, i i pitch some articles i want to write things i want to explore and you know, the other day I wrote a piece on Dr. Strangelove for them, you know, and the the famous last scene with Slim Pickens on the bomb. Um, you know, and that was just a fun historical thing to do for them, for the back section of the mag. So it's nice to do. Um, it's nice to be writing about modern things sometimes. You know, a lot of what I write about is old. You know, even, you know, films like Terminator and Lord of the Rings are now, you know, 20 years, if not older. So, it's nice to sort of stay in with what's going on right now. I I do a radio slot once a week. So, I, you know, reviewing films. um, So, I still get to see most of the new releases, which is great um, because I still like seeing new stuff and keeping up to speed. You know, when you do books, you get very locked into one world for a long period of time. And that's fantastic because you can drill down on the detail, you can get completely immersed. But also you go slightly barking mad, you know, when the only thing you're writing about is Terminator, you know, you just need a bit of kind of a a bit of release, you know, a bit of oxygen from something else. And I think it's great that Empire still gives me that.
0: Well, ironically, uh, what's funny about what you just said, and it it immediately made me start thinking about it, was um, this podcast originally was a kind of a generic not generic, but like a general movie podcast where I would talk about anything movie related. And the thing that I kept coming back to, no matter what I would talk about, somehow I incorporated Terminator into it because it's my favorite thing in all of cinema. And people would like message me or they would email me and they'd be like, we love your stuff, but can you just kind of dial back on the Terminator talk? Because this is supposed to be a movies podcast and you like all we're hearing about is Terminator every episode. And so I just kind of, you know, took that criticism and some people said that I, you know, basically didn't listen to them because I zeroed in on Terminator. (laughs) But it's, it's funny that you say that because, um, you know, it's, it's this thing of, you know, I'm kind of thinking about it every once in a while where it's like, I'm a a Terminator podcast and I love it to death. And there's sometimes certain days, not, not very often, but er every once in a while I'll find myself going, man, I wish I could talk about, you know, some other things, but yeah. At the end of the day, it is what it is. And I still love it so much. And um, it's just uh, the greatest thing personally to me because the themes and everything around it and uh we'll get into that but um it's so great to hear about your story at empire and uh i wanted to ask you a question about that because it's something that i think is uh a big issue when it comes to physical media so it could be it could be a magazine it could be a it could be a blu-ray it could be something it all seems like it's going towards the digital stuff and the old school quote-unquote ways of getting your media is going extinct so what do you think the evolution of empire is going to be i mean at some point it's not going to be available as a magazine like a magazine is going to eventually probably cease to exist at some point
1: you know absolutely i mean these were discussions we were having while i was still there you know what is the future what does it hold how bleak is it going to be you know some kind of dystopian james cameron future we were imagining where we we're all out of a job and begging for food uh, <laughs> you know and it is it is a dilemma um you know it was a bit of a relief to be honest with you when i left that i wouldn't have to think so much about that anymore and worry about it books thankfully um are, you know for the time being safe you know to a certain extent there's no digital media yet and that, that sort of doesn't tire you out to read a, at a book length you know kindles haven't really taken off um you know in the sense that there are certain things books can do that nothing else can really do because screens are too bright but magazines you're right uh, i think there is a future where empire won't be paper anymore um they've yeah you know, they, they've got a very good podcast uh it's doing very well they uh, have, a, have a reasonably good digital side. You know, it's not exactly what I had wanted for for Empire. And that's another one of the reasons why I kind of went, went. you know, because they had a different concept for the digital side of the company. Um, I would say that needs work. You know, they need to make sure that's that's strong. You know, there might be around the corner, there is a delivery system for magazine length articles or even magazines themselves onto your computer onto your phone or whatever it might be that's really simple like a digital form of publishing that you just click once and you get a magazine instantly uh, and empire could sort of work its way into that so rather than just being a website that sort of updates hourly or whatever it is you could have a magazine arrive at a certain point. We did talk about these things. We talked about the idea of, you know, an ongoing magazine online that you would kind of constantly update, but it would be Empire the Magazine rather than Empire the Website. And you would sort of update a cover every so often, you know. And news would update daily, reviews would update weekly, and features would update monthly. You know, these were the kind of patterns of thought we had. Um, Maybe that someone will figure that out, you know, across all media companies everywhere in the world, these debates are being had. Um, I think podcasts have become enormously important uh, and a hugely valuable way of kind of journalism reinterpreting itself. Um, So I hope the Empire podcast will end up being a sort of a way the magazine can evolve. You know, The, the, the heart of all this, of course, is how does it carry on making money? Because it won't exist without that. Um, so that's, that's like a big publishing question it has to face. Um, I don't know fundamentally where it will be in 10 years, even five years. Um, you know, I certainly think there is um, a desire amongst readers for long form, for longer articles. You know, the one thing a, a magazine can do that, in a way, websites can't do, is slow down. You know, it's take its time. So the great thing I think for Empire is not to worry about being first because you're never going to be online. People go into screenings and start tweeting 15 minutes into a film. You know, you can't compete with anything like that. But What you can do is the opposite. You can say, actually, we're going to write about this film over two, three weeks. We're going to send someone to the set and they're going to spend, you know, the next two weeks writing a 3,000 word article that just immerses you in the film, gives you a sort of sense of its personality and the personalities involved, gives you the colour of the world, um, brings it to life in probably an old-fashioned but very desirable way, you know. I do think people still want to read. Uh, I know we're all addicted to phones right now and that's kind of where everybody's thinking and going, but, you know, I love when I get up in the morning and make myself a cup of coffee and I just open a book and I think, gosh, this is fantastic, what a luxury this is. And I kind of hope for for mankind's sake that that will carry on.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's when you start thinking about it and, and, you know, I'm not much of a reader, but I do, you know, especially when it comes to movie books and books about movie making. And those are definitely my go-to. Like if I go into a Barnes and Noble or whatever, I'm always going to that particular section of the store and, uh, you know, I've come across, you know, when I, when I reached out to you and then I went back through all your credits, you know, I've definitely come across multiple of your books, you know, and, uh, it's, it's that experience. It's, you know, something that I hope never goes away and going into a store and, 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 and seeing, you know, all of this stuff that you can really dive into. It's sort of the same thing with, you know, movie stores and that's yeah. something that doesn't exist anymore. And it's so heartbreaking because it's, you can't beat that. I mean, yes, it's so much more convenient to just type it in Netflix or pop it up on your phone, but it doesn't hold that same sentimentality to me personally compared to going into a blockbuster and looking at the movie or going into a Barnes and Noble and yeah. pulling that book off the shelf. And You know, assuming it's a fresh book, that smell that it has, and (laughs) and it's just so beautiful, and yeah, it's it's so heartbreaking because you know I am thinking, especially because we're only ten years away from twenty twenty nine, which is like kind of scary if you start thinking about that because uh, you know obviously that's a very critical date in the films, but um, it's just so scary to think of like what in my lifetime, in your lifetime the like the changes that are going to be happening and and uh hopefully it doesn't cease to exist completely hopefully there are the mom and pop shops that you know keep that stuff going sort of like vinyl um
1: yeah i, I you know i don't know, I, I always joke that you know i I've, I've gone into the oldest of old medias you know i've gone into writing books um but it just seems to me that you know i, I obviously i i have meetings with my publishers and i, I talk to them generally and They're fairly positive publishers. They're all exploring different avenues and different ways of publishing. And they're all, you know, working on the digital front. But they find great success in coffee table books. You know, Um, the great, one of the loveliest things about both Alien Vault and Terminator Vault is just the pictures and the marriage of the pictures and the words that sort of give it a life that doesn't work on a Kindle, you know, and doesn't really have the same effect on a website um you know i think there is something about reading that hasn't been um beaten by you know the the digital world it hasn't yet kind of found a way of, of superseding it because you know you can't read a book on a screen you can read it in tiny little bits maybe you know if you're you know resilient but i do <laughs> think that the, the page will carry on existing because we kind of need it to um maybe someone will vent a kind of technology where we just plug ourselves into a book and help us download straight into our brain but you know by that point in time you know skynet will have taken over so you know we're all doomed anyway
0: exactly no it's <laughs> 10 years 10 years <laughs> and that is so frightening um yeah. but so moving on from this the this was sort of like a uh, like a like a TED technology talk, um, <laughs> but I, but it was so fascinating because, I mean, it all does tie into and that's something that I love about these films, um, you know, technology and sort of man versus technology. And uh, when was so for people who are not familiar with the book, um, yes. who should definitely be familiar with this book, because this is. Uh, one of the quintessential books when it comes to Terminator because there's not there there hasn't been a lot of um, I'm trying to use some other words besides books but uh, there there really isn't when it comes to the story the complete story of these two films and Terminator Vault is one of them and you know obviously it has like you said the pictures and and the incredible words but it also has something that again digital can't beat which is the stuff that is you can like actually pull out like the yeah, like yeah. I, I remember when I opened that book and um, I think I had a not like a de- like like um not like a bad version of the book but I don't think I had a secured version of it because instantly all of the stuff just kind of fell out and but that was okay because I was just side like I was amazed by it because I was like looking at a replica of the the Sarah Connor photo and and that's the stuff like that's the stuff if you're a fan of terminator that's the that's the little you know cherry on top of this incredible cake so the idea of that book how did it come to you so you had done i done alien alien,
1: vault. i done alien vault um uh, with a company called Becker and mayer who are a publisher in america um and they'd sort of come through um they sort of come through a london publisher they use because they were interested in the empire um to find a writer and they came to empire and they sort of said, look, who, who was the alien guy. And thank goodness that was me. I was the guy who always covered it. Cause I was so into it. And that's how I got the alien Vault gig. I had to do a kind of a sample chapter, all the things you have to go through as an author, you know, a proposal. Um, but I have to really give credit to, to Becca and Mayer. They had this um, concept for their books, you know, including these kind of physical, um, parts of the, of the book makeup in envelopes where they would reproduce blueprints and script pages and posters that just gave it another dimension and they then went to to Fox uh, with Alien and opened up the archive and got the rights and we kind of went through stuff together and pointed out which pictures are brilliant and how we could work physically in turning them into these kind of extra pieces and then when we came back to do terminator really it was follow the alien model the book had been very successful and they kind of went well can we do the same thing with terminator and then you know we've that evolved into making it very much terminator one and two because that's the cameron story we wanted to tell because in a way alien vault was a ridley scott story so this had to be a james cameron story and um so we went back over the same way terminator was slightly more complicated because it wasn't made with a studio it was made with many different partners over the years and the rights were quite scattered to the image rights of various imagery sort of companies like Hemdale and Orion had gone bust over the years and Corolco had gone bust by the time we came to write it. And so the rights had kind of passed on between companies. So it was a bit more of a detective job to track down where the kind of materials were and how we could use them. Actually Cameron's people were very helpful in that, you know, once he was on board, it kind of opened up a lot of doors. And then then we started going through it um, and just found this wonderful material. You get what you start to realize is all this paperwork, which might sound boring, um, you know, but actually you start to look through the paperwork and they've got old casting suggestions. You know, there was a suggestion on one piece of paper that Bruce Springsteen was going to play Kyle Reese. You know, I never realized all these things. It's like sort of Tutankhamun's tomb. You suddenly open up all these documents and it's the, the whole filmmaking process, the whole thinking that went into it something opens up before you it's just fantastic and i think yeah
0: sorry sorry did um when like when you say cameron's people like was it you 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 had cameron on board he knew the book uh like the idea of the book was it now okay he basically went to his home and said here's everything i've ever kept of my history with this or like how did that work
1: No, it was a little bit of of different things. There were various libraries in in America, in in L.A., that have images, and you can find them relatively easy. There were some that, that Cameron sort of got for us. The problem is more about the rights to those images. You know, who actually owns the image is complicated, which it certainly was with Terminator. And with Alien and Fox, they were all owned by Fox, and that was simple, you know was this. Um, there was various different archives. Cameron had some stuff. There was some stuff, I think, with, this is going back a few years now, with MGM, because they had bought Orion Pictures. So in terms of the first film, The, the Terminator, they had stuff. Um, with Karolko, it had moved on through a couple of companies, but it did exist in certain places. Um, and you know, it wasn't just me. There was sort of picture editors at Becker and Mayer who were of on this detective trail as well um and at that point you know the internet did exist so we could you know look up things online and go that's fantastic you know someone sort of found it and sort of done a digital picture then we had to source it you know legally um so that was quite quite complicated um but once if you have if you can go to various people and go hey, can we use this image? Um, they'll go, what's the book? And you go, well, this is it. And actually, Gail Ann Hurd's involved. James Cameron's involved. Michael Medavoy's involved. Arnold Schwarzenegger's involved. Then the kind of the obstacles kind of fall away, you know. Um, so that's kind of the kind of knock on effect it had. Um, but I have to give great credit to the picture research department at Beckham Mayer because they started to unearthing things I'd never seen. These fantastic images. And I don't know if they literally found them in the bottom of drawers somewhere or in warehouses <laughs> somewhere or they were on digital archives. All the alien stuff had been digitized. Uh, so that was relatively easy. Um, but with Terminator, it was much more of a kind of treasure hunt. Wow.
0: Well, so well, like what's really weird and, and and kind of fascinating about that, and it's always something that I've known, but it's it's not something that until you, I'm hearing you talk about it, it's it's the idea that um and there's been you know disputes of of this stuff over the years and i in it's all in my opinion it's all just people trying to profit off of cameron's creation but it is james cameron's creation the terminator like the idea of that and and that whole film but what's so crazy about it is he's the guy that did it but yet i don't think that and based off of what you're saying like saying it seems to be true he doesn't have it's it's not like he owns it, right? It's not um, it's not his anymore.
1: <laughs> it, it, interestingly, uh, he did. You're absolutely right. He he, uh, because when he made the first one, he was an unknown. You know, he was a, he was a tyro director. He was trying to get his, you know going in the film industry, and so he had very little power. And so when it was made, the Terminator was made. It was with a kind of a patchwork of different financiers and distributors and all around the world. So. You know, in the end, he didn't have the rights. When the sequel came up, the rights had fallen to Corolco. They wanted him to do it, and he did it, but he didn't own it. Um, but the deal was somewhere along the line that while he, he relinquished the rights, um, they revert to him this year, 2019. So the whole time these various sequels were being made, pretty much without his approval, or certainly without his involvement. I know he, he kind of gave his kind of blessing to certain ones, more out of friendship with Schwarzenegger, I think, than anything. Um, but he didn't own the rights. So people could literally do what they wanted with the with the Terminator franchise without his approval because it, you know, it passed on to different companies and they'd spent a lot of money getting the rights. But in the background, there was this kind of time limit that in 2019, they would revert to Cameron. So this year's Terminator Dark Fate is very much James Cameron's Terminator again, because, you know, the, the rights have reversed him. I imagine, you know, I don't know, but I imagine his cut of Terminator Dark Fate is pretty big, you know, because it's now his film again. Um, so it has been, you know, for all those years, something he's lost control of. But finally, this year, he's regained control of it.
0: And that's the thing that is really kind of um, upsetting for people that are so die hard when it comes to Cameron, because I love Avatar. I like, like, like I love it, but if I have to assemble a, a top James Cameron, it's not in like the top five. And it's so crazy to me that he's spending so much of his time, you know, devoted to those Avatar films. And, and, and I'm sure it's going to be worth the wait, but it's, you know sort of like what you said it's like now he has this year he's getting that stuff back but he's really you know when it comes to dark fate he's he's a producer on it and i've talked to some of the cast members on this podcast from dark fate and they all said and i think he confirmed it in an like an uh interview that he wasn't really present on set um you know, it, it would be sort of like they'd film it and then they'd send it to him for approval or, yeah. or whatever, but it's just crazy to me like that. He has the stuff now and, but he's really not going to be focused that it, like heavily on it because, you know, he's more interested in the avatar uh, world and it's just, uh, it's frustrating <laughs> because there, there's only one James Cameron and we're not going to have him forever so it's just that's the frustrating part that he's you know like dedicated so much of his time to avatar but it is nice that this is the year i'm kind of curious how they landed on 2019 maybe the 35th anniversary of the first film i don't know
1: i i I get a lot of it just to do with that's the rights becoming clear for him to take charge again you know legally it was 2019 um so that was the window you know i was thinking i'm sure they could have done 2020 but uh Maybe he was just eager to get going again on it. And I, I'm kind of with you, really, on the whole. You know, what would you rather James Cameron was doing? You know, like you, uh, Avatar was was remarkable for me, but uh, did I like it as much as the Terminators? No. Did I like it as much as Aliens? No. Um, you know, I always come back to uh, the fact that you know, as wonderful and extraordinary as the digital work is on on Avatar, and I'm sure they're moving on leaps and bounds with the sequels he's a guy who flew a helicopter under a freeway bridge in LA. You know, no one had ever flown a helicopter under a freeway bridge. And that to me means so much more, you know, the impact of that, the real world, throwing a metal around is just so exciting and can't be beaten. And I wish, you know, he would get back to just throwing metal around a bit more.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is crazy. the, The, the behind the scenes stories. And so, uh, with Terminator Vault. um, they came to you and they said let's you know we we really want to capitalize on the success of your first book. so we're going to do this and um, you've, you 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 really decide to focus on T1 and T2 which is the best thing that you could have done because in my opinion that's the canon that's that's the story right there T3 4 5 Sarah Connor Chronicles none of that i just call that bad fan fiction because <laughs> it really is i mean it's so not in line with what Cameron established, um, even down to like minute details of getting John Connor's age wrong to uh, certain dates don't line up in the Sarah Connor Chronicles. It's just all frustrating. But um, when you were doing that book and going back through it, what is your favorite Terminator film between the two?
1: It's uh, a good question. Um... Before I went into the book, I didn't really have an answer to that. Um, You know, it's something I I love both films, but for different reasons. You know, uh, The Terminator is, you know, as Cameron says, it's it's a slasher movie in some respects. He modeled it on Halloween and, and John Carpenter. And it has that kind of stalker drive to it. So it's grungier and it's kind of got that lovely kind of you know made it up as they go along feel to it you you can feel the sweat and toil but i think coming out of the book and you know you go over these films endlessly you know one of the worst things about writing a book about a film is that you look too hard and it takes a long time before you can go back and just enjoy the film again because you're just going through the the making of it in your head um but i think it's t2 for me Uh, i think t2 is just a fabulous piece of storytelling you know, I think one of Cameron's great gifts is actually, you know, besides all, you know, his prowess with technology and stunts and action and all the things we love him for, he's just a natural storyteller. You know, he can't help himself. This is why people love Titanic you know, and why they love Avatar, because he can just tell a story. Um And that's what comes across with T2. With you can, like, you just follow it in terms of storytelling terms. It's just fantastic character development, surprises, you know, there's a lovely, ingenious idea of turning Sarah Connor into the Terminator effectively, and turning the T-800 Arnie into Sarah Connor, the mother figure, you know, it's it's inverted the whole idea hilariously and sensitively, um, you know, and this whole kind of sort of apocalyptic backdrop in which You catch this idea, I think, that Cameron is worried about where mankind is going. You know, I I think he he is, you know, attuned to what could be our downfall and he's trying to tell us things. You know, he's not banging us over the head with it, but they're films full of themes and ideas. um, And he's just extraordinarily memorable. Uh, You know, you can virtually, I'm, I'm sure you can, but if I stop now and, you know, started thinking about Terminator 2 or The Terminator, I could probably go beat by beat back through them in my head pretty easily. You know, remember all the major parts of the films, you know, you never forget a Cameron film.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very true. And he's sort of, he's sort of, um, it might be an unfair comparison, but in terms of at least just the amount of stuff he has released when it's him as the director, he's sort of our present day Stanley Kubrick because he only has seven films to his name. And he's been working since the the technically the late '70s. So uh, that's insane to me. Like he only has seven movies, excluding Piranha. If you if you have Piranha <laughs> in there, then then it's eight. But um, but it is only seven, and uh, it's just nuts. So um, something about Cameron that really is uh, just just a uh, a big focus. Uh, for me, is the fact that he is so selective, and and um, when it comes to his films, obviously he'll produce something. You know, he'll he'll executive produce something. He has a bunch of those credits, but uh, he really only does something when he feels he is so passionate about it, and he wants to tell that story. Because I mean, from Titanic to Avatar, there's a twelve year gap. Yeah. of him not doing any feature-length films. He went off and did all those documentaries. So uh, he is definitely someone to celebrate, and and that's why it's so frustrating that he is dedicated to this Avatar stuff because he's once in a lifetime. You know, he is very much, like I said, he's he's our Kubrick today, I think, over Spielberg and and all the other people out there. It's just, he's so special.
1: Yeah, I think... You know, you, you look at the careers, and, and Kubrick's a very good model uh, for Cameron's kind of career. You get to a stage where success becomes a bit of a problem. You know, how? You know, the biggest problem for James Cameron is he constantly has to be as good as James Cameron. You know, his biggest rival is always himself. And you know you can't let that drop, in a way. If you are like Spielberg, in a sense, you're going to do lots of different things, and you're going to work at a, you know, a fair pace... You can get away with a 1941 or a you know Always or a Terminal every so often because people kind of know there'll be another great film along the way. But Cameron's sort of films become these kind of holy items almost because they're so successful. I mean, he still made the biggest film of all time. I mean, Avengers Endgame hasn't beaten it um, for eight years. It was Titanic. No one thought he could ever beat Titanic. Then he doubles it with a, with you know Avatar. So it must be incredibly hard to get up and go, how do I repeat this? In some ways, I, I kind of wish he'd done something like The Crowded Room or, you know, a smaller film in there, maybe after Titanic, that just could have taken the pressure off a little bit and sort of said, actually, you, know, you can do a small character-based film and then go back and make an epic. Um, because, otherwise, you know, now more than ever, his problem is he's got to create James Cameron films. You know, he's now confronted with a world where the superhero Marvel phenomena uh, is, has taken over. And, um, you know, I think he's got to live up to that. So I think he keeps delaying his avatars because I'm sure he's going back into research and development to try and create more and more and more. Because when it arrives, it has to be the most remarkable film ever made, certainly from his perspective i think you know otherwise it'll be deemed a failure so the pressure to still be james cameron must be immense
0: yeah it 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 really has to be i mean he has he has true lies in there which you would kind of look at as like the oddball in his entire filmography it's the one that i tend to forget that he actually did yeah, yeah. um like i always find myself going oh crap he did true lies and uh, I love that film and, and it, it definitely is still a, a James Cameron product, but, um, I think that's the closest thing even compared to the Terminator. Cause I think the Terminator, while in terms of maybe budget and whatnot is smaller compared to true lies, the ideas and everything and the themes and, and really what that story suggests in the first film is much bigger than true lies. So, um, True Lies is like that one little tiny film that he did and I think I don't know if you have any information on this but um, he has some kind of film that is in the works after all these Avatar movies and I think it's called The Informationist that he has like he like he bought the rights to a book that he might yeah. be adapting um, that and that just well.
1: yeah.
0: yeah like that seems like that could be the one kind of like you said more character driven and kind of out of left field thing for Cameron after all these sequels because you really have to wonder all these Avatar sequels come out and then what? Like then what's really what's next for Cameron? (laughs) You know, it's he's going to drop four or five you know, Avatar films and then what? I mean, people are arguing that you know, really who cares about Avatar 2? It's this thing of, you know he's put so much time in between it and
1: yeah it but really he always, is interesting. But he always turns up, doesn't he? You know, it's not yeah. as if he's you know immune to these debates because he's having them in his own head. You know, he knows that Avatar can't just be another rerun of the first film. He probably kind of knows that 3D is kind of fading and people don't care anymore. Um so he's obviously preparing something, you know. Um I hope it's still storytelling, because I think that's his instinct and that's the most important thing to me. However impressive the bells and whistles are underwater scenes and all this kind of thing whatever technology he's advancing um, I do hope that he's written some great adventure stories and that's what's going to win this back over but it's going to go you forgot how much fun yeah you know, they're like westerns you know they're going to be just thrilling to, to watch and, and get involved in um, you know but like you you know I think beyond that I would want to see him do something you know, uh, thrillers that don't involve special effects. A court, imagine him doing a courtroom thriller, you know, uh, just doing something more contained. Um, let's see what he's like um, without science fiction to fall back on, you know. Um, you know, he, he, he he's a natural director, um, but he seems to be that's his field, you know. He's got to be P.T. Barnum at all times. And I would like to see him, you know, maybe in his last few films be a bit like Spielberg and, you know, do some political films and, you know, mix it up a bit more, you know, just so we can see other parts of his imagination at work.
0: Yeah. Oh, please, please, Cameron, please. (laughs) Um, So the other thing about, and I know this is all kind of scattershot and all over the place, but I can't help myself because it's so, sort of like you said with the empire thing, it's just once you get somebody that you can kind of really just hit it off with and, and, get, and get rolling here, I'm sure during some of those meetings you found yourself going off to, you know, point a and then to point D and then back to point <laughs> B and um, it just happens. But uh, kind of going back to the book, because something that I love about that book is you also even talk about uh t2 3d battle across time um which was the uh yeah you know the attraction that he was involved with for universal and uh still to this day it's the third best terminator film and it's a, <laughs> it's, it's literally 12 minutes long and
1: yeah, yeah. it's interesting isn't it um I, I i went to it a couple of times actually and i it felt to me uh, it was official canon because obviously he was involved and they brought back Arnie and they brought back um, Linda Hamilton and for Ed Furlong, you know, so you kind of thought, well, this is, you know, something I had to put in for completeness sake. And i would be interested to see, and I kind of expect it to be kind of written off with dark fate, that it isn't part of the, the new timeline because it is, you know, it was a bit, sort of theatrical and it was a, it was a kind of as much a film as it was a you know theme park ride um but it was such a sort of a proving ground on things like 3d and uh digital effects you know it was in certain ways i think a kind of litmus test for for cameron's future um but it's yeah it's probably i you know it doesn't exist anymore does it they've replaced it now with something else i think Um,
0: yeah it's uh over in hollywood it closed in 2012 and they replaced it with minions right um which is just uh yeah every time i say that i die a little because (laughs) it's just (laughs) minions took out the terminator wow um but in orlando which is like the original location of it it's still undetermined so um we don't know what's going to replace it but uh did you ever get a chance to experience it
1: yeah, and no, I did it a couple of times. I did it um, both in L.A. Um, once was uh, uh, when I was just there on holiday and I went to Universal and queued up and, and saw it just like everybody else. And then once uh, I was back over there working on the book and I thought, well, I need to, you know, I, I, this is going to be part of it. I should go back and, and have a look. And I went sort of, you know, like a Monday morning or something. And it was only half full Um but it was really interesting. It was interesting to watch it with from a more technical point of view, like you know, how do they do it, and how does it stand up as a story or kind of short story, um, you know, and all the kind of the kind of um, theatrical elements mixed in with the kind of three dimensional elements, and um, and they still had that that sort of Cameron look to it, you know, it still felt like it was. You know, it felt like it was an extension of T two. It was like a sort of a, a tendril of T two that had gone off and sort of been made, that fitted in with that world. Um, you know, I, I, you know, it, it's great fun. Um, I don't consider it like a like a film in, in the sense of the first two and the sequels that didn't really work. You know, is it as good? I don't think that's the right argument in a way because it's not that kind of thing. But um, it was important, and it was important to put it in the book.
0: Did you get a chance to talk to, because I actually haven't um, gone back through the book and I probably should have before this, but did you get a chance to talk to um, Gary Goddard who was pretty instrumental in that attraction? Did you get a chance to talk to him a little bit or?
1: I did, yeah. I, I got a small amount of time with him um, and he he was kind of great because, you know, as he was saying earlier, you know there isn't masses of stuff out there. There wasn't before Terminator Vault. Um, there's not, now The you, with many films, you know, you get these great archives and sort of fan sites online that accumulate all the kind of material from all over the place going right back in time. Magazine articles and interviews and all sorts of things. So in a way, you can just Google, you know, these days probably T2 3D Battle Across Time and all this material would suddenly be there before your eyes. But when I wrote the book, that wasn't quite the same. So, I was actually having to find it out. So obviously I knew the ride existed. I'd seen it and I'd kind of experienced it, but I didn't know the background. And I had to go to Godard's people and find it, you know, and then and talk to him and, and learn it, you know, and get it into the book, which was a great, a great sort of discipline, um, you know, and, and he, he was a really good guy and really interesting about his relationship with Cameron and how involved he was. Um, you know what they expected from it you know in terms of um, you know it was very much at that time uh, a lot of thinking about where films were going to go you know in terms of the format of films you know in 10 years time what was a movie going to be like you know would it be four-dimensional would you would your chair you know move with the with the ride you know would it would it become something much more interactive I mean, these questions are still being asked, but he was very much like this was for Jim a little bit of uh, an experiment in what could film become sort of research and development, the science of of film, you know. So he was testing the boundaries within the kind of confines of, yes, it's a theme park ride. And yes, they knew what they had to do. Um, So it was quite interesting to learn that actually from from Cameron's point of view, It was very much an experiment, an exploration of what the future might hold for him as a feature film director. You know, a lot of the things haven't evolved along those lines, and thankfully, because I'm still a great believer in good old fashioned narrative. But maybe a lot of what occurred with 3D and with Avatar probably were born in Battle Across Time.
0: Very true, very true. Yeah, because he was uh, well. This was like right before because this is '96 and uh just a year later so he was you know really kind of juggling two things because he was also into production on Titanic so um and obviously pushing the boundaries of other technologies with that film and uh but yeah I do agree with you that it you know it was definitely a stepping stone and um it's just so it's just so special especially living here in Orlando it's yeah Uh, I would go to it constantly. And I just recently actually had the chance to have some of those cast members from the attraction on and do like a reunion because it's coming up on two years that the, uh, the Orlando attraction closed. So that was fun to reminisce with them and, and hear all the, the kind of backstage of like how, like the, the Harley worked coming out through the screen and, and just the technologies that were involved with that. And, but that's what I loved about the the book. It's just, you know, I was going through it and I was, you know, really happy to see, you know, such dedication to the two films. And then I came across T2 3D and I was like, oh man, this, like, this really is the complete definitive thing right. because you would expect some other author to not even care about that, to be like, that was just a theme park attraction that has nothing to do with, with anything and uh i think it is a vital part of that of, of the story i don't me personally I, I don't count it as canon because of how picky i am with details and the whole coming back fully clothed and on a bike yeah, and yeah. all that stuff you know you, you can really pick it apart but uh it's that kind of stuff that makes me go ah eh, it's not canon because that uh, to me that just kind of breaks the rules but um it is, a, it is a great part of the franchise. So the um, the last thing I wanted to ask about the book was how come? How come you chose not to count 3, 4, and the Sarah Connor Chronicles as part of the complete story? Why was it such a focus on on James Cameron?
1: Um, a lot of that was born out of uh, Alien Vault. When we, we, we did Alien Vault, it was very much we're going to do the first film and only touch upon the sequels very late on in terms of its legacy. So it became a book about the creation of Alien, but it became a book about Ridley Scott at the same time. You know, the kind of parallel the director is the kind of author of the film kind of side of it. So with that as the model, um, when we talked about doing Terminator, we talked about the fact that it had to be concentrated like that. It had to be built around Cameron's personality. Um, But you couldn't separate T two out, you know. In that respect, you know, it couldn't be just on the Terminator. That just seemed obvious to us. You know, um, that you had to do both films because they were kind of they're part of one story. Um, And once he was involved, you know, that became ever more the case. That that's kind of what we wanted to do. Plus, you know, as you've been saying, and we were, you know, I was well aware of how three and four you know had gone down even for me i didn't like them very much what was the point in spending expending too much paper and space and effort on films people didn't like as much you know we knew we were going to put them in we knew we were going to sort of talk a little bit about how they came about and how they related back to the original franchise but the stories we wanted to tell are the first two because they were the the remarkable films they were the ones people held on to And, you know, that's what we felt the heart of the book was, Uh, you know, if you bought a book about the Terminator, that's what you wanted to read about. You know, the first one is just a fantastic story about the birth of both a franchise and the birth of an incredible directing talent. Uh, Yeah. And an incredible star as well. You know, it's kind of threefold story. It was about special effects. It was about James Cameron. It's about Arnold Schwarzenegger. The second one was about... um, applying that to the blockbuster world you know so the first one we made for a very small budget almost as a horror movie whereas the, the second one was the biggest movie of all time you know when it was made so suddenly everything was different and it was just about the birth of really the proper birth of digital effects in any meaningful sense you know it, after it became jurassic park and all that and the revolution happened but it kind of I know there was The Abyss and there was um, young Sherlock Holmes had a digital effect in it, but really it it happened in T2. That was the great proving ground uh, of what digital could be. So it was, you know, even beyond just as a part of the franchise, it was a historic film filmically in terms of cinema as a whole. It was one of those kind of great um, sort of epoch-changing events. Um, Yeah, and I just wanted to get into it. You know, it was just part of me that wanted to tell that story, you know, about how they came back, about how he rewrote the script and changed what it was going to be, you know, about making a film in that context, you know, with these kind of larger than life co producers, you know, banging on his door and with Schwarzenegger now a megastar and how he would react to it. Um, so it, it was kind of this wonderful kind of two halves of the book going to work very well. You know, it is one story, but it's told in two very distinct chapters.
0: So, so, okay, that's that's the really refreshing part that that it seemed like everybody was on board, that it wasn't like you saying, I want to focus on one and two. And then, you know, whoever, whoever else was a part of the book going, no, 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 we we should include everything. And it's 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 nice to see that, like, from the way you're uh, saying it, it seems like everybody was on board for just the Cameron story.
1: Oh, absolutely! From from the very beginning, the publisher was Becher and Mayer. They were absolutely of that mind. Um, You know, they just kind of, you know, when you kind of make a book at heart, yeah, you've got to remember you've got to try and sell the book, you know, at all times, you know. So you have to remember why would people buy it, you know? And people would only buy a book if they love what it's about, really, you know. Otherwise, you know, books are expensive and. You know, someone goes in the shop. They're not going to buy a book about something they kind of like or they kind of thought was okay. You know, they're going to buy a book because they're passionate about the subject. And you know, people are passionate about those first two films, and they're not as passionate about three and four. And you know, I I wanted to write a book about Aliens um, because I knew people were passionate about that as well. But we we kind of fell over on that because image rights became a big problem. There was image rights amongst the the Marines was was complicated and it was getting very expensive. So that didn't happen because of that. Um, But that was one I felt we could have done a vault with, you know, along the same lines, because I think people are enormously passionate about that film. But, you know, if you actually boil it down, there aren't that many films you can do these books about. We talked about Predator, but I don't think it would work. Um, People don't like it as much um you know the book i did in lord of the rings was a very different kind of book it was much more of a kind of written narrative um the different kind of film history um you know right now i've been talking to a publisher about a james cameron biography a sort of film by film um, that would be more sort of spread out and would include you know the incredible stories of the abyss and true lies and titanic you know to bring come out it's slightly more about him than about the films yeah you know, marriage of the two things um but really, you know, there aren't that many films you can do a vault with um, that have that kind of key fan obsession about them. I mean, Star Wars is kind of its own thing and has its own books. Um, but really, when we kind of uh, came to it, once you've done Alien, the only other one we could do was Terminator with the first two films. Ah.
0: <laughs> uh, I, I'm just kind of, cause that was literally going to be a question I was going to ask. Are you kind of thinking about maybe zeroing in on Cameron as a whole? So I, I don't know if you need kind of any validation and whatever <laughs> mine is, but please do that book because, um, I, I, I would be there day one when it's released, I would put a pre-order in, I would do everything. I, I want to read that, especially from, from, from you because, um, just your, your, your passion and your dedication and your experience, you know, it, it, all comes into uh play. So definitely I think that is something, I don't know how that
1: goes, those talks, but so, yeah, as, as I, you know, as I was saying, you know, he, he is more than just a director when he, what a subject he is, you know, he is like a scientist and an explorer and a visionary, you know, and that term is thrown around Hollywood so easily. Um, but he is truly a guy, he doesn't just make films, he kind of pushes back the boundaries of the medium when he does. And, you know, as you're saying, they're incredibly rare, you know, they're kind of people who sort of push us forward, they're just like, that kind of drive they have in them. He's like one of the great inventors, you know, he, he, you know, if he wasn't making films, you know, he would have been like the Wright brothers back in the day, making sure we can fly or, you know, coming up with something else. Peter Jackson always says that about him because they got to know each other very well because of the New Zealand connection. Peter Jackson says he's not really a director at all. He's an inventor. You know, he's, you know, he's someone who just comes up with these things and dreams up the future. Uh, And that's kind of something that's very exciting about him as a subject. So where does Cameron fall in your,
0: in your, um, in your mind of the all time greats? Like who is who is the like the number one, and then where does Cameron fall? Assuming Cameron isn't your number one.
1: <laughs> well, I I, I kind of cheat with these questions because uh, you know I, I hate narrowing it down. Um, you know I've written about film for nearly thirty years, and if people say, "What's your favorite film?" Uh, I give them like two hundred films as an answer. I've done <laughs> a Twitter thread, which basically is that me just going, "If you want to know what my favorite film is, here's number one hundred eighty nine. You know, it's this one." Because, you know, why one? You know, there are so many different kinds of films, and different kinds of experiences. Of course, Terminator and Terminator 2 are amongst those, as is Aliens. Um, you know, and the same will go, we'll go for directors. Um, you know, I, I, I love the, the kind of the great tapestry that film offers you. So I like Hitchcock and I like Billy Wilder and I like Vim Venders, and I love the Coen brothers. And I love Ridley Scott and I love James Cameron, you know, and I don't know if I like sort of boiling it down to one because you can suddenly wake up and go, I'm in a completely, you know, in a mood for a Catherine Bigelow film today, not for a James Cameron film. But I'm into the ones that have made the indelible imprint. And it's that kind of permanence, you know, the point where the film transcends whatever its box office was or whenever it came out and becomes just kind of a fixture in culture. And there's no doubt that, you know, both Terminator one and Terminator two have done that as have aliens and Titanic and probably avatar, you could argue as well. So Cameron has changed the way we perceive film.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And, and uh, tying back to empire, I, I love, I actually picked up, um, cause I'll pick up select issues of that magazine and I picked up, uh, the most recent one was, I think they're in their series of like the 30 most adventurous filmmakers.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: And, and, and Cameron was the inaugural one. So, uh, I picked that issue up and that was really awesome to see that he was sort of like the kickoff to it. Um, and I love that issue. It's such a great one, but, uh, okay. Yeah. So that's cool. So you're very kind of open-minded. You don't want to, you don't want to yeah. be like. Cameron is number five.
1: <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't think that way particularly. You know, I'm probably you know a good gun to my head, and I you know probably ten directors I would take to a desert island who probably would be amongst them. But um, you know, I think it's you don't want to narrow film down to to one kind of thing, one kind of personality, and one kind of style because what you know you, you want to have the luxury of watching John Ford films if you wanted, you know, or the great horror movies. Uh, you know John carpenter films you know you don 't want to do without the thing um you don't want to do without the exorcist um you know you don't want to do without david Lane's films you know uh, so i I kinda i do cheat and say, no, actually you know i want it I want all these films you know I have favorites, I think it's kind of the ones you return to you know I think that's always a good mark of um whether it's a favorite or not. how many times you go back to it? And I've been back to the Terminators a lot as I have Alien and as I have Miller's Crossing, uh, as I have um, The Godfather, you know, uh, as I have, um, you know, Lincoln and um, Indiana Jones and the Raiders Lost Up, you know, the great Spielbergs. So, you know, I I do cheat. And I say I want all these. I'm greedy. (laughs) (laughs) So
0: with the with, with terminator vault it's the like the final thing that i wanted to kind of round this out with was sort of similar to what's happening this year with alien vault it's being re-released and uh well uh, alien vault is to include yes. uh covenant and Pr- prometheus um is there any plans assuming that dark fate does well critically commercially and falls in line with everything that cameron established in one and two is there any plans to include a re-release and have dark fate uh as like a part of that
1: yeah i mean there was we did talk actually at the time when we we decided to go ahead with the alien vault sort of reboot ex- expansion for this year the new edition that was kind of modeled on it being 40 year birthday of alien this year and we talked then about um, terminator and whether we should time uh, re-release the book in with with Dark Fate, there were concerns that it wasn't Cameron directing, that uh, would eat into it a little bit. Um, and there were th- all the there were kind of, as I said earlier, you know, Alien has a much simpler rights issue than Terminator does. So going back again and sort of getting the rights to redo the book proved quite complicated again and i think from the publisher's point of view it wasn't worthwhile investigating it for this year i think you're right i think we're going to look at how the film does and how much it expands and reopens the world again because it's not just about going back to the book it's about having something to write you know that's worth writing is the story of dark fate going to be interesting enough to add to the book you know at least with With Alien Vault, you know, Ridley Scott did direct Prometheus and Alien Covenant, however you think of the two films, you know, so that was more of a valid reason for kind of redoing it. Um, But I'm keen. But as I say, my mind is slightly on a book about his career as a whole. um, And that's kind of where I'd rather go for the moment than maybe redoing The Vault. Um, So I'm not sure there's enough stuff yet to kind of put back into or to add to it. Um, but it's not off the table at all. It's certainly something we've talked about.
0: Awesome, that's great to hear. But yeah, because assuming that it is the the true uh, third film in the franchise, that would be awesome to to really. Because I mean, uh, I assume that they're going to do because it seems like they do that with every major release. They they release a making of book, but um, it would be really cool to get your perspective and have that kind of be an expansion on the on the Terminator Vault book. Um, so they are definitely something that I think uh, if it does check off every box, I think that could be uh, a really cool expansion pack yeah. for the uh, for the vault. Was the name um, Alien Vault, Terminator Vault, was that your name? Like, did you come up with that name? No,
1: that, that came from the publisher. Um, and, uh, you know, you, can, you argue back and forth on these things and what works and what doesn't work. And we never really settled on anything that seemed to kind of encompass the idea of the history of those films plus this kind of treasure trove of images and you know uh, inserts that you know give it a different kind of presence in the market and the word vault seemed to achieve that you know hand on my heart do i love that title probably not i'd probably go for something more grandiose you know the terminator story but you know I, i get from the publisher's point of view what they need to do and when you do books you always have to remember that, you know, you're not left on your own to dream up your next book. You work with a publisher and you have to be commercial. It's not making a film, really. If You're working with a studio. You know, you can't take that out of the equation. They've got factors they want to do, where the book sits in the market, how they promote it, how it kind of communicates itself to potential readers. Because, you know, that's important. That's how they make their money back. So... Uh, I am conscious of that. When you come go to do books, they need uh, kind of good titles and good commercial imperatives. Um, and I think they felt after Alien Vault had been success that it was worthwhile sticking with it because you had a kind of brand identity. If that makes sense, you know. Um, I always like doing things in threes because you know the trilogy thing kind of fits. And I always thought, you know, was there another one to add to it? But we haven't found it. Um, you know, the third vault. Um, and then, yeah, I have friends who take the Mickey and going you yeah, know, when are you going to do the Xanadu vault? Or are you going to do, you know, <laughs> you know, leave it to Beaver Vault or whatever, you know, they kind of, I get that kind of jokes all the time. But, um, but as we said earlier, I think there's only very few films that it works with, very particular kind of um, detail of film and world that the the films contain that that just kind of translates and you know um the few and far between i would I, I i'm gonna
0: i'm gonna join that list of friends and i'm just gonna throw one out here <laughs> you, can, you can laugh it off you can you can go hmm, maybe maybe um uh like the stanley kubrick vault the the because kubrick is my second favorite filmmaker and uh you know something like that we're because his career is literally finished it's it's encompassed yeah. and yeah I would just ah, oh, I would eat that up, especially with all the like you said, the pictures and the the inserts and stuff. Like, I think there could be some really cool uh, inserts. Do you have so, so so? That's my suggestion. Do you have any say on what the inserts are?
1: Uh, a little bit, and um, you do work with the picture editors, um, and you know, from my point of view, it's pursuing original images, you know, ones you haven't seen, because you're having worked on Empire. You know, a lot of those images you go. I've seen this a hundred times. Can we not find a new one? Um, and from their point of view, there are cost implications. And but thing, I think Beckhamay were really good, and their picture editor was especially excellent. Uh, you know, she she watched the films again, and she got very into it, and she started to go. Look, I think this is. You know, we've not seen this one. She come up with stuff. I like, go, oh, my god, where did you find that? Um, but it's interesting you say about Kubrick. You know, I, I've had a couple of discussions over the years about that. Uh, we talked about doing 2001 at one point, and there's been a couple of very good books since I've had that discussion. The Kubrick estate is very difficult, in, you know, in terms of you know, there's a, there's an absolute fabulous wealth of images. There's a great book, uh, a giant, very expensive book on his career, Kubrick Archives, I think it's called. Yeah, if you find a copy of that, so it's a marvelous book, um, yeah. but it's like hundreds of dollars. You know, it's very expensive. And they got an official access, too, because all the Kubrick archives was given to a university in London. So it's, it's really getting the rights to the images that are complicated with him and the estate, um, you know. And my, my worry a bit with Kubrick was, you know, there are a lot of books written about Stanley Kubrick, you know, and it's finding new ground and, and sort of finding my own place in that. Um, but, yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. I would love that challenge
0: that that is a that is an interesting thing because yeah you you really have to ponder you know how much how much has already been written about him because you can only write so much (laughs) when you know before you start to just literally make up stuff and uh yeah so that's that's something that uh you you would have to consider i guess um yeah
1: it's kind of like i especially with alien that was something i was very conscious of because you know that alien and you know, uh, anthology box set of DVDs is fantastic. Charles de los Arito, the kind of producer of all the extras, did a, a fantastic job. So you get very conscious of like, you know, and there's only so many stories, you know, there's only so many that people remember. And there's only, in reality, so many involved in the making of, you know, they don't change. So I really have to say, right, well, how do I drill down into it? You know, how do I unearth a new take on the familiar? You know, how many, you know, biographies of, you know, great war stories are republished every year? How many Hitler biographies have there been? You know, you have to make your peace and go, well, yeah, at least this book will be mine and no one else's. No one else can do that. Um, you know, when I did The Lord of the Rings book, you know, I was so conscious of um, that DVD box sets was so detailed. But I thought all I can do is just sort of, Go even more obsessive and take even more time over the stories, you know, drill down into even greater detail and say, well, that's what I want to do, you know. Um, but it's difficult. It, it is difficult. I mean, someone like Kubrick, you know, he's become this kind of myth. So it's even bigger. You know, you're talking about someone who's sort of, you know, is, is mysterious and you're trying to try and compass all that. His obsessive nature and how he went about things, um, which is a whole different ballgame.
0: Very much so, yes. So, uh, well, I really think that we've touched on as much as I can really think that I wanted to touch on. Um, and uh, usually at the end of these, I like to kind of ask, you know, what's your favorite this, what's your favorite that? Um, but I am afraid that you're going to be uh, a little harder because you don't really <laughs> like to have one favorite thing or one favorite this. Um, I'll give it a
1: go if you want. You know, I, you know I, as I say, it's just like that, that favourite film question. I'm sure you get asked it a lot. And it's, <laughs> you're just kind of like, well, you know, yeah, I'm sure I can pull one out of the air and go, that's first among equals. But, you know, in the end, you, I, you know, It's that my old kind of publisher in my head, you're trying to get people to watch films. So you want to say, look, there's all these films. You know, this is why you've got to be into it. You know, every week I get to go and see new films because I did this radio thing and I saw Midsummer last week. Which is bonkers, mad, and terrifying, and completely different from anything else. And you want to encourage people to go and see that because it's so unusual. Um, you know, so you, I still got that empire head on me a little bit, where I kind of want to go. You know, you want to keep people going to the cinema, and I, I'm, you know, with Netflix and, and sort of Amazon and all those kind of pressures now, I still believe very much in the purity of the cinema that it's a different experience that once you're in that black box with just the screen, you know, and you get taken into the world you're on that screen and you don't look at your phone and you don't do any of these other things, it's something still wonderful and pure. So I'm a great advocate for you know, cinema as a whole. Okay. Okay.
0: So but 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 I can but I can throw a couple at you and just see what happens.
1: Yeah, I'll do my best.
0: Okay. Um so I kind of uh, wanted to go decade by decade. So we'll stay from the '70s on. Favorite film, one of your favorite films from the '70s.
1: One, well, um, I would go with Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now. Just an experience like no other. You know, um, it's uh, elemental. You know, you go on this journey with it, and you feel like you're in, you know, the, the boat on that river you're going out. It's in Cambodia, isn't it? The actual river, and is just uh, just a vision of hell like, like no other. And in one of the last of those great, you know, Titanic making-offs, you know, that it was as hard to make as it displays the drama on the screen. You know, it was just kind of uh, a work of madness, but uh, visionary at the same time.
0: Now, a film from the 70s that maybe not a lot of people have seen, because Apocalypse Now is arguably... Yes one yes. of the biggest cool. from the 70s a 70s film that you think not a lot of people have seen maybe myself included that we definitely Ooh, no.
1: should 70s film not a lot of people have seen i ain't gonna get me um <laughs> i should have the oldest to hand let me um let me think what uh, do i like unusual ones um there's some very good, I, I, have a, I really do like the films of Wim Wenders. He's a German director. Who made, he does these wonderful films about America. He made Paris, Texas, which is probably my pick for the 80s. But uh, he made a film called American Friend, which I think's the late 70s. I might be wrong about that. That's one I would pick. I would say um, uh, The Sorcerer, the William Freakin Remake of Wages of Fear. Um, it's a fantastically claustrophobic, high wire tension act of a, of a movie. That's terrific. Um, you know, it was an extraordinary era for film. Uh, you know, in a very sort of different way. Um, you know, I I would say I thought I would say, and you probably have seen this, but I seen Jewel. You know, I think Jewel's a remarkable film. Spielberg's made for TV, but released in the cinemas in in Europe. Extraordinary. Uh, sort of primal kind of film, which is never really, apart from Jaws, maybe revisited. Just that idea of the simplicity of it, and the Terminator has that quality. And I think Jaws was a big influence on on Cameron. That sense of the implacable foe you can't reason with, you know, it's just survival. I think that's such a primal idea.
0: Yes, I oh, I love Duel. I love it so so much. That's honestly when people bring up Spielberg and i say you know ha- have you seen duel and you know depending on who that person is they'll be like what and it's it's really one of his forgotten you know yeah. masterpieces really it's so it's in my top 5 spielbergs and wow. it's literally like one of the like the simplest things that he's ever done compared to his later career and uh it's just yeah it's i find myself more and more like like the simpler the the story is yeah. That's what I'm more drawn to. So
1: yeah, absolutely that, that that kind of purity of, of story. And then it, it gets complicated. You know, I've been writing about this having money book on Ridley Scott and I've been back in the world of Blade Runner, you know, and it's an extraordinary film, but actually it's quite simple. It's just, you know, a, a cop after it's a chase movie, really. He's just trying to track these, these replicants down or will they get to him first? You know, it's quite clean in terms of its storytelling. You remember that film, and you think, "Wow, that was so dense and complicated." World, that's all the that's all the dressing around it. At heart, it's it's very clean. You know, it's a film noir, and it's in a detective story about a guy tracking down these kind of illegal immigrants, basically. And that sort of jumped out at me. About, and that's the same is true of Alien as well. You know, it's such a pure, clean story. You know. They've got this thing on board. How do they survive? You know, with the unkillable creature in their midst. You know, and these days, you know, and I don't want to sound old and boring, so I don't really get the whole superhero thing. But I don't really, you know, I enjoy them on a certain level. But they're so complicated in terms of the world and what you have to know about the kind of homework you have to have done before you go in, just to remember who was who and where and what and when yeah you know, I know people love them and i and I get that and I appreciate that because you know I love people going to the cinema um but for me are like you saying it's that lovely kind of um driving simplicity and that kind of sense of of inevitability in the story that there's no other way in which the story could go except the you know way it goes and that's so there in Terminator and it's so there in Terminator 2 as well,
0: yeah exactly and i i'm I'm with you on the, the, the superhero craze. I don't, I couldn't tell you the last Marvel thing. I, I, it might've been the Avengers, the first one. I'm just, I'm just so not on board with it all. It's, uh, especially considering, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're very, I'm going to go gentle here. They're very weak attempt at trying to dethrone Cameron from the, from the number one spot, which is yeah. ironic because they're both Disney owned now. So, um, But yeah, I, uh, I'm not on board with any of that stuff. It's, yeah, I don't know, but the, um, so those are good suggestions. I've seen a couple of them and some of them I haven't. So, uh, good, uh, good stuff, uh, from the eighties though, which is one of my favorite decades. It's, um, really where my kind of better knowledge of cinema starts to begin. What is like your favorite from the eighties? And then, like a couple that probably not a lot of people have seen
1: um or favorites very hard um because like you i, I kind of grew up watching films in the 80s um you know and have such kind of formative experiences from that area my first date movies in the 80s i have a, a fabulous memory um of the day i saw gremlins and ghostbusters on the same day me and my friends went to an afternoon screening of Gremlins. Then we joined the queue and saw Ghostbusters straight afterwards. What a day that was! You know, <laughs> you know, shaped me in so many ways. Um, you know, and I, I, I remember queuing up with my mum to see um, You know, what's the standout? I, I would go with Blade Runner. I think because it just lives with me constantly. That film, and when I go back to it, and I've seen it you know, 20, 30 times, if not more. I still find things in it. And, you know, it's it's kind of like something that haunts you, you know, and sort of dogs your memories and dreams. Um, Scott has found a texture that's different and and fabulous. And so that will be my sort of famous film of the 80s. My unusual one, as I I briefly mentioned, is Paris, Texas. Film vendors, it's one of the great films about America by a non-American. He's a German director who came in, and it's a script by Sam Shepard, and it's Harry Dean Stanton, and it's a, it's this kind of tragic romance. Um, but it's just this vividly beautiful film. Vin um, uh, Bendis had this cinematographer called Rudy Muller, who was his kind of compatriot in Germany. He, Rudy Muller just has an, an eye that comes from the planet Mars, I think. You know, he just has, you know, these scenes in Paris, Texas, where the sky is green and, like, the road is red and it's, like, nighttime, and And it's just like something nuclear has gone on. There's, like, radioactivity in, in visuals. Yet the film is incredibly intimate. It's about this kind of family that's fallen apart. But it's all desert streets and it's just this idea of, sort of, longing. It's like one of those, sort of, great, sort of, songs that you know, mournful Dylan songs or Springsteen songs that kind of, and it has this kind of rye kuda soundtrack that's just beautiful and haunting and elegant. Yeah. Very different from the experiences of, you know, Terminator or, or even Blade Runner or, or, you know, the big sci-fi films. But that to me is the joy, you know, I can have Paris, Texas and I can have the Terminator at the same time.
0: Very true. Very true. And I actually have never seen that. So That is, uh that's one i'm gonna definitely try to
1: just i would you know if you have a yeah if you're a romantic at all the the last half an hour will break your heart natasha kinski it will break your heart yeah show it to your girlfriend and she'll be a basket case at the end of it i promise you you that that will happen
0: (laughs) awesome well i will i will definitely let you know if that uh if (laughs) that happens um
1: 90s, 90s. Now you're getting into my Empire time. So, you know, <laughs> this is very uh, coloured by working and um, all those kind of experiences. Um, you know, I, I, I have a, such a memory of the, you know, the, the Matrix uh, just blowing us away uh, at Empire, and we hadn't seen it coming. Um, you know, I, I love Fight Club. A lot. Um, but I think it's dated a little bit, maybe now. I, I, I sort of saw it you know, about a few months ago and thought, eh, has it dated? Something at the end of it felt a little dated to me. Um, what about in the middle of the 90s? What, what's the big one I would take? Uh, God, I just am terrible at these things. I have to kind of stop and plan and, and, and be aware. Um, no, I'll take The Matrix, is my big one. Um, yeah, awesome. Because just uh, with my empire head on, You know, and it would never happen these days where you'd go into it. You know, we spent like two years before 99 working on The Phantom Menace because it was a return of Star Wars. You know, investing so much time and energy with with Lucasfilm and Fox and just getting ourselves into a place where we can be first and cover it better than anyone else in the world. I put so much passion and work into it. Yet we went along. Warner said, come and see this film. You know, we think you're going to be impressed. And we'd seen the trailer and we thought, what is this? And, you know, we didn't quite get it. Huh. And we all sat there watching, you know, that moment, the first moment when she jumps up and the camera spins around. And we just went, fuck, like the whole team almost simultaneously. We thought, we, we, you know, we've, we've picked the wrong team. You know, that's the film everyone's going to remember. And we still did our Star Wars stuff and it worked very well. But we had to kind of virtually overnight, it felt like suddenly put Matrix on the cover and we had to go. This is the big sci fi film, you know, and I, I love that you know, we could have that experience because I'm not sure you could do that now because of the Internet. You kind of know what's coming. You might get the old film here and there that shocks you and surprises you. But, uh, you know, I think the Matrix, was the last time we were really shaken up by the event of, an arrival of a of film we hadn't seen coming. Man, man,
0: yeah, ah, and then for like the like the one movie that is really kind of out of left field in the '90s.
1: God, out of left field. Um, are I go for. Uh, I would go for again. I don't know how left field this is because it probably isn't. But Miller's Crossing was '91, and that film just means so much to me. I know it but actually word for word. It is one of the greatest scripts in terms of just what a script can do. The language, the the kind of the humour. Everyone kind of accuses the Coens of being heartless. You know, their films are kind of, they're games and they're intricate, but they're kind of formalist and, and, you know, and they're so clever. They're kind of, they're unemotional. But if you watch Miller's Crossing, it's a story about brothers and brotherhood and these two friends, and it's a story about gangsters, and it's pastiche, but it's full of heart, and it's full of black humour. And I just love the character of Tom Reagan, you know, chasing his hat through this kind of weird 20s gangster world, constantly being beaten up. So it's a little bit like Bogart as well, it's like a 50s movie as well as a 20s movie. It does those great Cohen things where, you know, he doesn't quite inhabit one genre, it kind of trips between different ones. And, you know, I just, I've watched it endlessly. Uh, John Polito is Johnny Casper. You know, if you can't trust a fix, what can you trust? You know, to be able to write like that is just astonishing to me, uh, to come up with those lines, you know. Um, so that is very important to me, and the Coen's hold a very special place in my, in my film-going heart.
0: Yeah, because you did write a you wrote a whole book on them, so
1: I did, I did. You know, and they're, they're different. You know, they're kind of enigmas, and they're and they're fascinating in a very different way. Like you have to kind of decipher their films. So they're kind of like kind of hieroglyphics in a way. You have to go in and kind of work them out. And I love that because that carries on forever.
0: <laughs> huh? The double O's.
1: The double O's. Blimey! Now where are we? I can't remember what came out in the double O's. Um,
0: and is it safe to say maybe Casino
1: Royale? Uh, yeah, kind of. Um, you know, my, my bond has always been Connery because of how I grew up. Um, so um, I did enjoy that. But, you know, other people in our office who enjoyed it more. Um, I'm going to cheat slightly by bringing Wikipedia up and say films of 20, 20, 20, <laughs> the 20,000s just so I can stir the memory cells. Um, but, you yeah, um, know... Yeah, I, I liked Casino Royale, certainly. And he's been an impressive Bond. Um, where are we? Two, two thousands in films. This, it's all right. I'm good. I shouldn't have at the top of my head, but, you know. It's all right,
0: the Double O's were a very impressive year. This name that you brought up, who I'm a big fan of... Uh, for Danny Boyle was a very, yeah. very good uh, decade for for Danny Boyle.
1: Yeah, I have a I, – I, um, training spotty was a big deal for me. I mean, that was 90s. Um, but, you know, that was another film we'd kind of invested a lot in, in, in Empire. And, you know, I'd got to know him through that. And he's a lovely, lovely guy, um, a real enthusiast and a real thinker and really kind of um, – really good at um, – for interpreting, and Barry has his very strong opinions, you know, of his what he feels, you know, he's very anti-Star Wars, and um, <laughs> you know, and loves Nick Rogue films and, yeah, different um, uh, so yeah, it, it, you know Danny would always be up there as you know, a great friend and director of mine um, but I'm going to let me give you a film for the 2000s um, but I never thought in these terms, really um this is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> where are we? Um, I don't think I know where I'm headed. Um, oh, no, it's 90s. Because I was going to say Heat. Can I, Heat's very important to me, too. Michael, Mann. Michael uh,
0: Mann. Well, from the 2000s, you have Collateral.
1: Yeah, now that is a great movie, Collateral. And it's a movie you can come back to a lot. Um, you know, just in terms of it, you, know, you forget about it a little bit. Because obviously everyone remembers Heat and some of his other films. That's a terrific film. Maybe I'll pick that one because I do have a, a great love of, of Michael Mann. So within that, we can say Collateral, but that includes kind of Heat and the Insider and Mad Hunter <laughs> as well. We're just kind of glue them in there.
0: Okay. Um, okay. So that's the like, that so that's the favorite one. But like, are there any kind of oddball ones from the two thousands? Oddball
1: ones. Let me
0: see the dates. Um. But I. What's really funny is I will yeah. agree with you that the 2000s is a it's it, it's it's for some reason hard to remember films that came out. I don't know why, but the 2000s is like a is like a weird decade because yeah. I have yeah. very like um it's so easy for me to name movies from 70s, 80s, 90s, and then when I get to the 2000s, I'm like,
1: was that in the
0: 2000s or
1: I know, yeah, it's just so sort of placing. <sighs> But that just went so quickly as well for me. It's just like what happened to the two thousands. You know, um, I'm sure there are many films I could mention. Trying to think of, you know, um, there was. Uh, there's a great ghost film called The Others with Nicole Kidman. Do you remember okay. that one? that's a good movie. I, I, it's not totally unusual. Um, I'd say That's a great one. More than Blair Witch. I I love, I love classical ghost stories. Um, I think you know they really work.
0: Uh, I just watched. Speaking of Blair Witch, I just watched that the other day. Uh, <laughs> if we're like if we're talking horror films, that's definitely in 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 my ten because oh man, it, literally almost nothing happens, and it's all in your imagination, and yep. that is that is so powerful, so powerful. <laughs> it just, you
1: should see. Go and see Midsummer. You'll like it, I think. It's got that same sense of dread in it, you know. It's very, it's quite slow, but then really kind of terrifying things that sort of happen, but in the background.
0: Midsummer, isn't that? I've been seeing some like stills of like a really deformed looking character.
1: Yeah, th- that's part of it. I was on the cover of um, Fangoria. Okay, uh, it's a guy he made Hereditary. Um, gotcha, and it's. Yeah, it's all set in this kind of Swedish commune and this is kind of rituals that go on. And These kind of students come to kind of re- research what they do. But really, the students have been lured there for a reason to be part of these rituals. And He slowly un- unravels what's, you know, what they want from them. And it's pretty horrific. But, uh, but in the sense of that, like Blair Witch, just has this sort of building sense of dread. It's like being on like a slippery slope. You kinda of know what's coming, but you, you you want to stop it happening and you're slipping down the slope towards it. Um so it's really discomforting. Um it's a really worth seeing. This is kinda of a great experience. Um
0: I like a good movie that unsettles me, so that's good. Yeah.
1: Okay, for my unusual one, and I'm sorry it's not that unusual, but I'll go with Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon, the the uh, MLE movie. Yeah. Um ju- you know, just again one of those jaw dropping you know, we've not seen it coming. I went to a very early screening of it while I was at Empire, and I kind of thought, yeah, what's this going to be? I heard it was kind of like a fancy adventure story, and I liked Ang Lee, but nothing prepared me for just how poetic and, and visual and thrilling it is. You know, I'm not a massive fan of chopsocky on that side of Asian films, particularly I like John Wu movies, but I don't really like, I find them a little monotonous chopsocky films, but this kind of, totally opened up the ideas of wushu and, and sort of martial arts to me in extraordinary ways and was just so wonderfully visual fighting in the treetops and those kind of fantastically over-the-top sword fights um, and made by someone who is clearly an artist you know and he really has something to say with the camera so i would say that one just fantastic
0: and a connection to the Matrix because I believe it's the same. Yeah, uh, yeah,
1: yes, it's the same. Yeah, choreographer. So they, they do tie together. Yeah. Uh...
0: Perfect. And finally, the tens. The tens are uh,
1: nearly, nearly over, aren't they? Um, they are nearly
0: over. This is terrifying. Um, <laughs> so, what's um, been your favorite film in this decade so far? Uh,
1: what else? Um, one of so I'm, I'm pulling them up again because my memory is so poor. Um, I'm going to share mine with you after
0: or before, depending on if you want me to go first because it's. And okay, you, you go as I as I pull up a list. All right, uh, Danny Boyle. There's there's the one hint. Okay. Okay. Danny interesting. Coyle and James Franco. Oh, 27.
1: 127 days later. 127 hours. Sorry. Hours. Yep. Yeah. I that, got it. I, I went on the set of that. I was out in Utah with them. Oh, you were on the set? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was good. Because I know Danny fairly well. So he, oh. he invited me out and I went for Empire. And it was out in Salt Lake City. And, and funny enough, I went uh, for one of the few times they were actually shooting indoors. They were shooting the actual After He Was Trapped sequences. And a lot of that was done on the soundstage. And they had two different, identical sets. Uh, but they were alternating between the two of them. So he would sort of get out and move one. So they could do different things with the camera. They could open it up and close it. And, and they had two different versions of the kind of, the, the kind of um, the Rocky defile that he's trapped in. Um, uh, it's good. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I like to see Danny work and, you know, he he's, he's very kind of dynamic on the set, you know, really gets in amongst it all. And, um, So it's a good choice, and that's quite unusual choice, really, because, yeah, it was mixed, the reception of it at the time, Um, you know, but I think you're right. I think it lasts that film.
0: I just I just remember so vividly, like that was my one of my first experiences, really, really being able to see what one person in front of the camera and then of course when i you know got into the film and then looking you know at danny boyle's real desire to make this film to just to see what one person can do in front of a camera like i had never been captivated by just one person as much as i had in that film it's just and then i think in the same year uh, R- uh ryan reynolds did a movie called buried yeah uh, yeah i know it yeah Where, I mean, again, it's just I got kind of obsessed with those movies where it's one person in one location and there's not many of them, but um, it's and then, of course, the fact that it's a true story is all the more just like you put yourself there and you go, I would probably just die. Like, (laughs) I, I would not be able to do that. And. It's so it's so heart wrenching. I I I came out of that theater and I definitely feel like I was a changed person, and I can't say that about many films, but 127 hours did that to me, and yeah, I yeah. went back multiple times. And uh, Danny Boyle just became somebody that I was so fascinated by, and then I went back into his films, and nothing ever came close for me to that film. But uh, yeah, Sunshine is another is another Danny Boyle film that that i love and but that's my pick for the 2010s yeah. it's just yeah it's I, just, I, I, love,
1: I love his first two i love shallow grave and i love um train spotting the first one i think he was so propulsive you know he used dance music and waves and we've never seen before in films you know and yeah you know, british film had this kind of habit of being quite parochial and always about kind of desperately sad people and desperately dramatic things and was a little sort of self-involved. Suddenly he came along and just exploded the idea of what a British film could be. Suddenly it was just thrilling and exciting and unpredictable, Um, you know. So he's always been, you know, a great sort of model for me of what a director should be doing. Yeah, I thought Steve Jobs was terrific. You know, sort of the way he executed that story is his kind of sort of backstage theatrical drama you know, over two to three different eras, um, And I think it was much maligned and should have been seen by more people. Um, yeah.
0: And I mean, talk about a director that really is just all over the place in terms of, in, in terms of, and I think he's even said it, he doesn't want to repeat the, like, the same genre. Like that is so impressive to me. And talking about Cameron, how he's kind of locked himself into a room and he has to be James Cameron. Danny Boyle can be yeah. anybody. Danny Boyle can be James Cameron if he wants to. I mean, he's so impressive when it comes to his to his variety and and my one gripe with him it's a very small gripe the fact that he named his sequel to Train Spotting T two that yes. always hurts me. It's like, why did you do that?
1: Yeah, <laughs> there's oh, a, bit of, a bit, of, <laughs> bit of bloody mindedness and you know, I don't know he was, what he was thinking. Um, <laughs> um, Okay, so the 2010s, for my mainstream one, I'm going to go with A Quiet Place. Um, Really? Yeah, I just thought, you know, in an era of these kind of rather swollen universes where, you know, there are prequels and sequels and sidequels and endless superheroes, like we were talking about earlier, it was just a fantastically pure idea, you know, and yet the characters lived and the execution of it was so sort of spot on. I'm very sad they're making a sequel because I thought it's done. It's just a beautifully told story, um, just wonderfully measured, you know, um, did horror, but it sort of did it in a kind of much more expansive way and just used great ideas. The idea of the girl who couldn't hear um, and all those things sort of, yeah, you know, just that fantastic. scene. I, was, I saw it at a press screening and uh, the woman behind me clearly had given birth, you know, and the whole sequence where she's trying to stifle her, her kind of her contractions and the pain. This woman behind me was kind of just going mad. She just could not cope. It was just a visceral reaction from someone in the audience just going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You know, that idea of having to stifle yourself. I thought it's great. I love it when you, they can cut through films and catches in a sort of primal way. You, like we are talking about Jewel early on that kind of sense of, you, you kind of feel the film with your whole body almost. And I think A Quiet Place did that.
0: Interesting. Interesting. I just found, I i, I really liked the experience the first time around, but then going back to it, it the one thing that stood out to me and I've, I've heard uh, other people mention this as well is, and I just want to see how like what you think about this particular point in the story is if this is going on if this is like the apocalypse and this is th- this is the situation that we are finding ourselves in why would you get pregnant in the first place
1: oh but they'd lost a child had not they you see and i suppose there would be that the only to try and survive and try and keep the human race going and but i think it's 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 more about the fact that they the child had died and in some ways it was sort of you know, a signal of hope. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure, you yeah. <laughs> know, like with many films, you can kind of press quite hard into them and go, you know, watching Blade Runner the other day, I was a bit like, why does he need to see them on a screen beforehand? You know, they, they come up when he goes into the office at the beginning, he sees all the replicants. He doesn't need the voight Kampf machine because he can just find them because he knows what they look like. You know, I know he's a, they might be a human version. I'm like, if he didn't show the visuals of them, then he wouldn't know who he was trying to find. Uh, but then, he, you know, yeah, there, so many films have got logic problems in them, haven't they? And, you know, I think the quality of a film often is if it doesn't make you ask the question. If you forget to ask the question, then you're kind of working. And that was, Hitchcock was always like he hated the plausibles, he used to call them. People who you would come out and go, Well, that's not plausible, that's not plausible. So he didn't care. But he said, you know, Cary Grant being attacked by a biplane is ludicrous. There are much more efficient ways of shooting him or getting rid of him. Why didn't someone just get off the bus and just shoot him with a gun? <laughs> it, you would never remember that. And you remember that biplane for the rest of your life. Um, True. you know. Yeah. So I guess you so,
0: but that's a good pick. That's a solid pick, and I am on board with you as well as with the sequel. It seems like a, it was like a like a one off kind of thing, and
1: yeah, I just thought it, it's a beautiful beat. You know, in some ways, you don't want to see it twice because, yeah. uh, as you say, you start with going, "Well, hold on, what about that? What about that? Why did not they go? You know, give birth under the waterfall? Isn't that the best place for her to give birth because they can't catch them? You know, why haven't they made the house underneath the waterfall? You know, but. <laughs> Then you're kind of you know, then the whole beauty of the film starts to dissolve. So you have to kind of, kind of let that go. Okay. But so... Kubrick, Kubrick never did that. To be fair, play like Kubrick was obsessed with those kind of things and would never let a film go on any of those kind of levels. So, you know, he was obsessed with with logic. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that that's a whole
0: other thing that we could get into. And I mean, of course, you like my my go to is The Shining and and how certain parts of that film just people go into certain locations, come out and the entire set is different behind them. Uh, You know, you could, you could look at that as like a continuity error, or you can look at that as he was very deliberate in what he was doing. And I fall with, you know, him being very deliberate. Um, But yeah, I think it's because of him. I, my, my, my obsessiveness with, with Kubrick and, and finding out how precise he was. And uh, he's really given me this kind of, that's how I approach all films now. And th- th- that's maybe not how you should approach every single film. Um, but I find myself doing that. And uh, that's probably what I did with a quiet place after I watched yeah. it why Why would you get pregnant in the first place? The whole yeah. point of you surviving is to be quiet and you cannot be quiet during birth. <laughs> I mean, but you they, can they try.
1: it do It's just, <laughs> you know, it, it all starts to unravel as soon as one thing starts going wrong. It's a kind of knock-on effect, isn't it? But uh, I do take your point, but, uh, you know, but it's a, it's what drives the drama, isn't it? You know, Paul, I, I remember doing like an on-stage Q&A with an audience with Paul Greengrass. It was like a school's Q&A. And they're all, when you do it with school kids, they're all exactly like this. Why is that? Why, well, you know, they just want to pick holes. And some kid put his hand up, you yeah, know, and they'd just seen one of the Bourne films, I can't remember which one, and said, if he'd fallen off the motorbike, you know, wouldn't he be injured, you know? And Paul Greengrass sort of Bradley said, well, yes, that's true. He may well have been, but I wouldn't have had the rest of my film then, would I? You know, and we'd all have to go home for half to half an hour. What's the point in that? You think at some point, you've just got to tell your story, you know, and just accept that ludicrous things will go on. um yeah stories can be far fetched and i think you know as i say it's about whether the film allows you know if it's well made enough you forget to ask the question you know you just you're so caught up with the, with the drama and the characters that not until later do you go well hold on a second why did they do that How, if they done this you know it doesn't matter really i suppose in some sense you know, it's, it's the immediacy of the experience is kind of where the filmmaker, I think, is, is kind of concentrating, unless they could break.
0: And to finish it off, the oddball in the. The oddball,
1: 20th. I will go with Winter's Bone, um, which is the film where the Jennifer Lawrence got discovered, um, which is just a fantastic uh, thriller, stroke, uh, western in some kind of ways. It's an unusual part of America to make a film in, you know, the Ozarks, and this isolated meth community. Um, just fantastic story of a girl trying to survive and protect her family, trying to find her father, and going on this kind of Alice in Wonderland from hell journey through this community, which was dominated by these matriarchal figures. It's really come kind of inverted. It's really interesting. Um, just uh, yeah, I'd been, I was. I was on a set visiting in new orleans at the time and i had my sort of day off and i was sort of, you know had, it was so hot in new orleans yeah you know, i couldn't bear being out in the streets, sort of seeing the sights i thought i would just go and see a movie and i found this kind of art house cinema and they had about three films and i don't really know i kind of heard of winter's bone but i don't really know what it was and i think it was just the one that was going to play the, the convenient time so I kind of went in and was so pleased, you know, I just found this film and I just thought it was just so evocative and powerful. And she, I don't think she's been better actually Jennifer Lawrence since then. I mean, Deborah Granik, I think is a terrific director. She made a film called Leave No Trace about last year. I think that was um, similar themes, you know, about this kind of off the track America. Um, I really wish they'd give deborah granick more films to make and you know more ambitious films to make because i think she's really got something and you know can make some really powerful stuff
0: Hmm. i've never seen that but i do know it came out around the same time as uh, because i remember seeing it in like the oscar race for uh, with 127 hours if i'm not mistaken um
1: very likely
0: yeah yeah, so I do remember hearing a lot about it, but uh, haven't come across that one. So these have Again, been these have been some really good recommendations. So I gotta I gotta check these out. Obviously, I think Midsummer is the one that I could easily check out because it's still in theaters.
1: Yes, um, that's that's just started playing. So yeah, uh, you have to ready yourself for that one. Steal yourself because it's pretty intense. Um,
0: perfect. <laughs> so uh, to round this out, to to because this has been seriously, uh, this has been like a real avalanche of just nonstop movie (laughs) geekdom talk. And I, I so enjoy this. Um, What is one thing that you hope this uh, to, to just bring it back to terminator to to really put a capper on this? What is like the one thing you want this new film to, to do, or you hope that it does, or where do you want this story to go? Being a fan of one and two.
1: Yeah. Um, one thing I, you know, like like kind of like we talked about, I, I would love for it to return to the kind of action stunt cinema that's imbued into both one and two, you know, to throw metal around, to you know, to be a bit like you know Fury Road, Mad Max Fury Road, in that sense of it just reminded you how good action films can be if you really do action. Um, so I'd love that. I hope, and I don't know if it will. Um, for me, Terminator One and Terminator Two, they're LA films. You know, they're about Los Angeles. Both are set there, and um, that's kind of another character in it. And I think they, they got lost in the sequels. That that idea. I mean, that Terminator Genesis goes to San Francisco. You're know, kind of getting it wrong. It's, Los Angeles is part of the fabric of this universe. Now I know they filmed a lot of it in Eastern Europe, so I don't know whether it will. But I hope it, in some ways, does go back to LA or the kind of the kind of the larger you know, expanses of LA, um, and sort of brings it back to that kind of heartland of of what uh, Terminator does. Um, you know, and I hope they make. obviously mean, there's quite a lot of demands I'm making of it, but I hope <laughs> they make sense of Arnie. You know, that it's not silly. You know. We have to presume he's an aging Terminator, at least on the outside. You know that one glimpse of him we've had is an old man. Um, I hope that that's good. You know, I hope with Cameron godfathering it all, the story is strong and makes sense of all those things, and it's is wonderfully compelling as those first two films were. Yes, yeah. Uh,
0: speaking of Arnold, the one thing that because I want this film to do what t2 did from t1 which was flip everything about arnold and uh i've been so vocal so vocal to like nauseam level of arnold needs to be the human prototype and yeah he, he think about how incredible that would be if assuming they don't give it away in trailers which terminator has a big problem with lately but this first trailer so far one glimpse, and that's it. That's that 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 is so beautiful because we don't know anything about him. He just opens a door, and there he is. Yeah, yeah. And how incredible would it be if we're in that film and we're thinking, you know, obviously, because it's just the way minds are wired. Oh, okay, Arnold's back, so he's going to be a Terminator. He's just going to be an older model, similar to Genesis. And we come to realize that no, he's 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 a human. It's just you know, Sarah is thinking she's come face to face again with the same um, Terminator from T2, you know, however many years later and comes to realize that he's actually just a guy who Skynet bases all of this off of, I think it's just a real fun flip again to flip everything and uh, really kind of round it out because the only other time we've ever seen that in film was with t3 in that god awful deleted scene i don't know if you've seen it with the sergeant william candy um and arnold was like the human prototype but it was so poorly done it was all done for laughs and comics right 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 it was just atrocious and uh they so they need to take that character and they need to apply it in this film but in a much more serious and you know obviously take it serious tone but uh that's one thing I hope they do amongst many other things, like you said, of just, you know, I hope they check this box, check this box. And so we'll see. But um, are you like going to be there day one? Are you really anticipating this film?
1: Yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, um, we'll see it, you know, uh, press screenings probably. I mean, these days the press screenings are a couple of nights before they're released. You know, they're very late in the day. So I'd imagine we'll see it the same week it comes out. So I I am looking forward to it. Yeah, I wasn't bowled over by the first trailer. You know, it's a bit like the the actual Terminator characters look a bit bland. But again, it's hard with just a trailer to go on. Um, I know I've got a friend who was on the set, and though he didn't give much away, partly because he didn't really know what the story is because they wouldn't tell him. Um, I think there's a bit of a Blade Runner 2049 element to it in terms of finding Arnie, you know, you know, just going in search of him. I don't quite know how it all works, um, but that's about as much as I know. Um, so yeah, yeah, you know, I am excited. Um, yeah, I, I hope it's not too CGI. It's a funny thing to say after saying Terminator Two pioneered CGI, but I hope it doesn't get bogged down in that. Um, yeah, I quite like to lead to Battle Angel, but after a while it gets wearing. How many of these scenes you sort of sit through? Um, but we'll see, you know. I, I'm optimistic, you know. Um, Cameron, you know, doesn't do things by halves, and he, he'll have read that script and you know, be looking at that footage. You know, he knows what's at stake, so I, I don't think he'll let it go out like the other sequels.
0: Very true, very true. He is the one thing that I'm holding on to with this, and we'll see come November 1st. So, um Ian, I uh, just got to say thank you. Thank you very much for no coming problem. It
1: on. Was fun. It was good fun.
0: It was very fun. And uh, for for really d- uh, going on this for a few hours now. So <laughs> um, I will uh, keep in touch with you. I'll let you know when this is all edited together and when it's available. Um, and for anybody listening, uh, if you want to um, have any, like anybody find you on social media, do you um, – Promote that, yeah, or do you, I do. do you... I, I'm on.
1: Um, I, I'm not very good at Facebook, um, but I'm. I'm on both Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I'm at Ian Nathan Two, the number two uh, on Twitter. Um, and it's at Ian Nathan Writer on Instagram, all one word. Um, so there, and there you can get me waffling on about films and trying to sell my books and all the things you have to do in this day and age. Um, but you know try and engage yeah I'm not a natural at social media you know so i come from an era of making magazines and you know there are people who are really good at it and just sort of chuck stuff out all the time and get hits and i'm i have to think about it and work it out what I want to do and it totally takes all the spontaneity out of it um but um yes i am present there and do some stuff there's a lot of kind of a uh, stephen kingy stuff going on at the moment because that's the next book i've got coming out but uh as long as you like yes.
0: that you said in uh september right
1: september the 5th yeah
0: perfect so uh keep an eye out for that and of course if uh, you guys have not checked out terminator vault you can go online and uh amazon ebay i'm sure it's kind of hard to find it like from barnes and noble and stuff like that because it's i think it's is it out of
1: print yes i think yeah we haven't yeah we haven't there, there are still some out there amazon's quite good to find it um you still find them at a pretty good price, um, but yeah, it's it's been out of print for a couple of years now, two or three years. Um, yeah, so
0: definitely check out Amazon and eBay, and you know, get your hands on the best you know condition book because you want to make sure you have all the the inserts in in top notch condition. But this is a uh, this is the definitive story on these films, so check it out. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, Ian.
1: And no problem. I'll keep in touch with you. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Talk to you later. Cheers.